fish head. It was hardly worthy of remark that he'd been born with the head of a fish. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Johnny Payne about his short story, Fish Head. And the story begins with what feels like the metamorphosis. And, you know, metamorphosis tales are ancient. They go back to the ancient myths and every culture, uh, animal-human metamorphoses in, in particular. And this is one more so... The difference as it starts is a fate accompli. You know, he's a hybrid creature, but his transformation has to have like a literal element to it, a, a physical animal element to it, and that's what happens in the water. Johnny Payne and Fishhead. Fishhead. On Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today, we'll be talking with writer Johnny Payne about his short story, Fishhead, a contemporary transformational tale for our times. On one level, about a boy named Walter who is born with the head of a fish, and its advantages, recognition, self-actualization, self-reflection, and on the other, its disadvantages, prejudice, epithets, and bullying. Who is Walter? And what in ourselves do we see in him? At the most basic level, this story is about a fish out of water, literally a fish out of water. being literally a fish out of water takes it out of the realm of the familiar and the rhetorical and makes it actual. It makes it real. Every time I ask where I am from, they say you'll just like us. Cause we raised what isn't that enough. Or they just don't get it. I would make the claim that Walter is the most human of any of the characters that we meet along the way. He's the most self-actualized, he's the most fully human, precisely because he has a fish head. worthy of remark that he'd been born with the head of a fish. If we are able to be human and humane, then somebody born with the head of a fish, assuming that were possible, <laughs> um, shouldn't be worthy of remark. It should be hardly worthy of remark. It, it might take us by surprise, but if we fixate on that, then that's what makes it worthy of remark. Spend some time and get to know Walter and author Johnny Payne on Arts and Letters. Johnny Payne, novelist, essayist, playwright, short story writer. Welcome to Arts and Letters. Thank you for having me, Brad. I'm a big fan of your show. I've listened to many episodes, so... For me to be on here is a good feeling. So the teacher in you, or the writing teacher in you, would you help explain a little bit of the difference between comedy 
and irony and satire? Okay, well, yeah, those are three related but somewhat different things. So if we take irony first, which many people confuse with sarcasm for whatever reason, I don't really know. They say, don't use an ironic tone. What irony really means is a situation that odds with itself. And we talk about dramatic irony. So one ironic situation for Walter, who has a fish head, in the story is that it turns out that he doesn't know how to swim. That's, that's irony. And it's a deliberate irony to show how his desire for conformity and his parents' insistence on his not learning to swim because they don't want him to think about himself as a fish. They want him to be assimilated <laughs> as if that were even possible. That creates a dramatic irony that I can exploit in the story. Fish head. It was hardly worthy of remark that he'd been born with the head of a fish. His condition, if you could call it that, wasn't terribly different, he'd imagine, from coming into the world deaf. From the first day, you didn't know anything but a lack of sound. Only by other people's reactions did you begin to be aware that you were categorized as rare. And, and I do but want to say, by the way, this story is written comically. Right. I mean, when I re- first wrote it and read it to a couple of people, they and I were both laughing so hard we could hardly get to the next sentence because it's about the absurdity of people and, um, you know, it's and, and that one shouldn't be taking these things so seriously. Yeah. necessarily have thought of a fish head as a defect until someone pointed out that it was. Making fun of you or simply stopping to stare as if you were a spectacle on display in a museum of taxidermy. Sporting a fish head had its advantages. An early girlfriend had been attracted because of his blubbery lips and told him he was a great kisser. Another liked the attention she got when he and she went out dancing. How every human head would turn, and somehow she managed to convince herself that it was her beauty, rather than his goggle eyes, fascinating passerbys. Still, another girl just liked fish. She had an aquarium with a miniature treasure chest inside, wavy plants, and was always testing the pH of the water so it wouldn't get out of balance. In the end, though, he did turn out to be a temporary novelty for these females. Satire is a very particular form of observational comedy, and that's when you hold up social maladies and social mores and social behavior to a mirror that's a somewhat mocking mirror. There's such a thing as gentle satire, but satire is going to have a bite. Satire is ideally laughter of self-recognition.
They left Walter as easily as they'd taken him up. He joked to himself about it, calling their behavior catch and release. His friends got the reference and laughed alongside, but something about the phrase made them nervous. You should always be a little bit uncomfortable when you're reading good satire, and often it works by displacement, such as in this story. The satirical part comes out of giving him a fish head. If you write something just as strict realism, I think it's much harder to be satirical. Some of his buddies liked to hang around him to show they weren't prejudiced. In their minds, they had street if they'd gotten seen in company of Walter, taking a puff off the same cigarette that he'd been smoking to prove that they weren't grossed out by his wet mouth. To be sure, there were social disadvantages. A group of guys at school started shouting out mackerel as he passed mackerel. in disparaging voices. We don't like you, mackerel. He couldn't figure out why they'd settled on that variety of fish, given that it was commercially successful. In fact, their town had a profitable mackerel cannery that employed many of the parents, and mackerel was said to have a mild and pleasant flavor. Not that Walter had tasted it, because that might be cannibalism. And then comedy is just that which causes laughter, and there are many qualities of comedy, many colors, many flavors, many tenors of comedy. And here I would say this has just some simple laugh-out-loud comedy out of absurdity and incongruity. For health reasons, he was vegan, so anything with the face was off the list. It did weird him out to watch anybody eating seafood, though he tried not to let on. He would get choked up and pretend into his napkin that he was suffering from seasonal allergies. Friends in his clique would hesitate at a restaurant before choosing fish and chips or fried catfish off the menu. would end up changing their minds, even when he tried to reassure them that it was okay, that he was not related to those species. Although in truth, he didn't really know his parentage. And then as the story progresses, it becomes a bit more satirical when it presses the point about intolerance through the way that the, the second half of the story unfolds. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with Johnny Payne about his short story, Fishing. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and this is Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with writer Johnny Payne as he talks about his short story, Fishing. Okay, so this story, it's about so many different things, and I don't know how I feel about the concept of one thing standing for another, but in this case, you know, we think about transformation stories, and most famously would be metamorphosis, which comes to mind. And of course, you use the word metamorphosis at the end of the story, but then there's also notions of identity here. I will say that I'm really big on stories not being read for their symbolic content, Kafka's famous story, people have been trying for many decades now to say what that insect or dung beetle or cockroach, depending on how it's translated, what that stands for. And nobody has really nailed it. It, it means different things to different people. So there's a certain indeterminacy there that's appealing. And we don't want to nail it down. So... I think it's more about creating a, a strong impression on the mind of the reader. Walter had been raised by a minister and his wife who had adopted him from an orphanage. They were kind, but they made it clear they didn't want to talk about his past, and he never got the courage to look into the matter on his own, as they might have perceived his initiative as a betrayal. 
They said he was their son, they loved him, and they didn't understand why he was concerned about his origins. You're just like us, because we raised you. They insisted and were proud to have him squeezed between them in the Christmas photo, almost defiantly sending that picture out to their friends and implicitly daring them to raise any issues about him being different. Without a doubt, those friends talked among themselves, but no one at church or in their circle was brave enough to point to his difference from everybody else. In fact, he sang in the choir. To put everyone at ease, he made an awkward joke about singing bass. But that didn't go over because bass was only an eye rhyme. Also, because he was a high Walter hadn't been able to determine his species. Even were he in fact a bass, would he be a largemouth, smallmouth, spotted, or striped? his face seemed more like a bluegills, unless it was a brims. His markings and features were ambiguous. He could really argue it in any direction from day to day. It was a shame facial recognition software hadn't yet developed to that stage, that you could take a picture of your head in a database in some department of zoology would provide an instant match, or at least percentages of probability. His phenotype and traits didn't point to anything obvious or specific. Rather, his head looked like an amalgamation of different species, like a child's idea of a fish drawn with crayon, except with a human body. A head alone wasn't enough to conclude with even remote accuracy. Perhaps if his whole body had been that of a fish, he'd have had enough to go on. Then again, if he were all fish, he wouldn't have had this problem in the first place. He'd just have been swimming with his school in some lake or other, acting instinctually and experiencing low-level thoughts, mostly about food and sheltering from predators. 
But there's always a moment in comedy where there's a turn. It's not just slapstick. There's a turn. At school, he sensed a protective bubble formed by his teachers and the principal. As though the matter had been discussed at the faculty lounge, possibly as a handicap needing protected status. Or an endangered species. Fish! A sense of threat remained ever-present, minimally represented by his being called mackerel. On the faces of those boys, he could see that if they'd had their way, they'd catch him unawares behind the school and beat him. Maybe even decapitate him if they'd been able to give absolute free reign to their hostile desires. I wanted to at least dangle the threat that a person like this, as we see happening in, uh, in our society now, can for any reason, at any moment, you can die for no reason whatsoever. Then the inevitable happened. to the curb on a side street one day when he was walking home from his part-time job at the car wash. It was a shortcut he had never had dared to take, but he was simply tired that day from buffing all the cars in the autumn chill and wanted to be home nursing a hot herbal tea. Four guys piled out, ones he recognized from their matching cage fighter buzz cuts, but barely knew. With practice speed, they stuffed him in the trunk of the car, closed it, and sped off. they'd gone through the auto wash not long before to scope him out and be sure he was at work. Consumed with abject terror, he focused on not peeing his pants as he'd been too lazy to relieve himself in the car wash's grimy, tiny employee bathroom before clocking out. Walter listened to the car's tires traverse regular highway pavement, clearly going out of town, as they didn't slow for any stoplights. Then the vehicle went off the pavement along a bumpy road, seemingly gravel. When the trunk opened, he saw branches overhanging and green light filtering through. There is a discomfort in the reader. I'm feeling very uncomfortable about this moment. As you said, the first half, you kind of suck us in with a bit of an extended metaphor, a playful image, very funny. And then, wham, Walter is grabbed right off the street and thrown into a trunk by these boys who might want to kill him. And so... Help me with the idea of discomfort in writing, because there seems to be a kind of honesty in it, a bearing open of yourself 
in order to do it well. We're looking at something really raw. It's something that I think I, I do in some way work to achieve is that I want people to move as much along the emotional spectrum, especially with incongruity, to be jolted out of laughter into something serious or to be almost at the point of tears and then suddenly they're made to laugh. And especially if they're laughing at something that that doesn't seem right, I don't mean something cruel, but just some kind of self-recognition truth that we laugh because we see ourselves in what's happening. And that's something that I, I prize as a writer. And I think I'm always kind of working the emotional terrain. And once again, the origin of that is in me. I work that way within my own being. So it's a natural transition to use that in writing. Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with writer Johnny Payne and his short story, Fish Head. Fish Head! When the trunk opened, he saw branches overhanging and green light filtering through. The boys had smug smiles of somebody who can kill you or not as they please. One was holding a big knife as if he were going to decapitate Walter or fillet him, but then another said, Put that in the car, don't be an idiot. And the knife wielder complied. They marched their prisoner to the edge of the town reservoir, which was stocked with fish such as trout and bass by the city. For a modest fee, you could fish, and when Walter had come out here once to make out with a girl who liked his lips, He'd seen old guys casting from the shore. At that moment, there was no one else in sight, unfortunately. Go back to your own kind, commanded the one who was clearly a ringleader. One who had a weird growth on the side of his nose that easily could have been fixed through cosmetic surgery. But his parents probably thought that having a wart or a tumor on his face made him look more masculine. Walter knew his parents would have taken care of such a detail if that had happened to him. I don't know what my own kind are, Walter observed. So, I mean, he starts to get bullied, and then there's a sense of threat over the story, and you realize that he could get killed. We just don't know. And Trey says, Go back to your own kind. And Walter says, I don't know what my own kind are. All the presuppositions that you're introducing here. What do things really mean? Go back to your own kind is not innocent within the context of this and within the context of our understanding of, of racism in this society. That's that's bad. Yeah, and people are afraid of mystery, the mystery of being. You know, everything has to be easily explainable. And trait doesn't have a clue what your own kind even means. Would you talk to us about this notion of one's own kind? In terms of talking about kind and cliques, I would go so far as to say that for me, personally, humanity is a series of cliques that passes itself off as kinds. I find the world disturbingly tribalistic, you know, mm -hmm. and that's always been something that's bothered me. And I myself don't want to be described as a kind. I'm from the South, but I don't want to be thought of as a Southern writer. Like, why do I have to define myself that way as opposed to 20 other possible ways? That, and that's just a benign example. But I feel like that's where the prejudice begins, is sorting people into kinds. And I feel like, in a way, it's to, to Walter's credit that he doesn't know his own kind. It's a weirdly enviable situation but it's human to want to belong and to go along trying to figure out where you fit and what your kind is because there's safety in numbers. To me, I actually want to raise that as a fallacy within the story, but there's a certain poignancy for Walter. He's a person who's been nurtured by his parents, but he still doesn't really belong anywhere. 
there are six or eight different varieties in this lake alone, and it's a crapshoot as to whether I belong to any of them. I doubt it. I'm more like, um, mestizo. The ringleader cuffed him. Don't be smart. I mean, they're fish. They all look the same. They don't, actually. Have you ever examined them closely? No, because they're not my relatives. Each type has different colored scales and gills. Their fins have a different shape. Some types of fish are several times as large as the others. You should be on the Nature Channel as a host, dude. Offered one of the malevolent foursome with what seemed genuine enthusiasm. That would be cool. They could call it Fish on Fish. You're a freak show. It makes me sick to see you walking down the hall with your arm around a girl. You disgust me. I think about you making a baby on one of them, and I almost lose my mind. I'm pretty sure a fish head is a recessive gene, offered Walter, improvising as if to mitigate the situation. I don't care. You're a mutant, like that guy in the fly. They should have killed you at birth. Come on, Trey, that's harsh. Shut up, Beaver, or you'll be riding the trunk on the way back. Now, fish boy, get in the lake and swim to your ancestors. This story, I think it's, it's very pertinent to now, to this moment in time. Intolerance, prejudice, isolation, loneliness difference. I see this story of this moment. Do you? Absolutely. And I believe that the entire collection is marked by present time. The stories are quite contemporary in theme and topic and approach. I am careful as a writer. I'd say in some way, a lot of my writing is political, but not with a capital P. It just is dealing in a pointed way with certain aspects of the human condition. And I am shy and skittish about writing stories that I think are harping on thematic elements in a scolding or lecturing way about obvious truths that people ought to know better anyway. So sometimes when I read very moralistic literature, I feel like the writer is trying to make herself or himself feel good that they're on the right side of history. But in some ways, we're all a little bit on the wrong side of the history, and we have to have some humility about that. And I feel like the more serious the situation, the more it cries out for comedy. And I find some of the censorious sobriety in some of the writing I'm seeing not to my taste particularly, because I, I do feel like it rehearses obvious truths often and that it takes that lecturing tone that is unwelcome to a reader. And I want to kind of slyly draw the reader in with comedy and irony and a little bit of a playful spirit. And that's exactly when you can give them a little dollop of truth that'll taste like a little bit of ice cream to them. And it does hopefully make them think a little bit, but in a little bit more complex way. And that is where I feel I can dare to write things that are more topical in terms of the hatred that's going on now and mm -hmm. try to come at it from a little bit different angle. Ironically, Walter didn't know how to swim. He'd asked his parents to give him lessons but they were funny about it, as if not wanting to lump him into the category of swimmers. As if that skill would have made him more like his birth parents. 
In truth, he had a hunch that he could have excelled on the swim team, probably been a star, unless rival schools made an issue of his head, as if to imply he had an unfair advantage. At bottom, apart from seeing swimming as a birthright, Walter instinctively knew that learning to swim was a sheer survival skill. And now he'd come to that exact crux. Walter instinctively knew that learning to swim was a sheer survival skill. And now he'd come to that exact crux. So they push him into the water. He stumbles and falls face down. And then they begin kicking him and beating up on him. And for him to get away, he kind of crawls through the muck. He goes deeper and deeper into the slimy floor. Without further ado, Trey pushed Walter into the water, whereupon he stumbled in the mud and fell face down. getting a couple of ounces of the acrid lake in his nostrils. As Trey began to kick him in the behind, he coughed. <laughs> to escape the foot flogging, Walter crawled forward through the muck, going in deeper until the slimy floor fell away and he was left in opaque liquid. Without question, he was going to die. would drown pathetically in the town reservoir and the boys would go up for murder. Or just as likely, they'd go free. As there were no witnesses and the other three boys would be too afraid of Trey to crack and confess. Unless Beaver turned out to have a heart and a conscience after all. Shut up, Beaver. Which was possible. They should have killed you at birth. These boys are a bit emblematic. How do you see them working in this story? They're not just thugs because they speak and they're one-dimensional on one hand, but they're they're emblematic, aren't they, of of hate? Yeah, well, of course we have the main villain. The other two are faceless and never say anything. And then the one named Beaver, the name suggests that maybe he gets tormented sometimes too and somebody gave him a cruel nickname. He expresses some doubt about what's going on. He's having second thoughts. That to me gives a little bit of dimensionality there to show that somebody who does things like this isn't just a caricature, but often in groups, there is a, a head bully who is gonna pull the others in line and who rules by fear. And I believe that in the, the brief scene there, that one gets a clear sense that there's one main bully and that everybody else is kind of just following along. The water invaded Walter's lungs and he prepared mentally for the death agony. As if to save him, his limbs flailed, at first as hysterical spasms, then in slower motion. In the mud-stained water, he saw a fish body pass by, then another, disappearing and circling back to cruise past his other side. Pathetically, despite his weak display of pseudo-knowledge on the shore, he knew nothing about fish. It was as though he'd been ashamed to really learn the taxonomy and the biology of his so-called kind. His stance had been evasion. Come, come with us. More and more fish crowded around Walter. Silver and brown. Plump and slender. And he became aware that he was breathing underwater. His arms and legs had relaxed and were swimming. He could see or perhaps sense with greater clarity what was going on around him. 
I can see the daylight coming, warming up the world around. And I can hear the life awaken, stirring around without a sound. Aloud, and it come. Around, make a sound. Aloud, and then come. Around. Particles hung suspended in a shaft of light penetrating the surface. What from above would have showed as open water held rock shelves? Places for aquatic life to rest, hide, dart in and out of, populate. Fish were observing him some touching his sides and head with their scales, as if to encourage. Others keeping their distance, simply curious about this hybrid creature in their midst. So like them. Yet so unlike them. Fish begin to look at him. They observe him. But instead of acting the way the boys did, they touch the sides of his head, they encourage him, and they're simply curious about this hybrid creature in their midst that's like them and so unlike them. I just think that's that's beautiful. Isn't that the world we should be in? Yeah, I think so. And I was happy I was able to get that in very few words to have that transformation happen. I think I would stick with the word metamorphosis. And I, I think it's about a transformation that's not affected by some wizard or it's just in a way, a natural occurrence that he begins to breathe. He's able to, he's able to, to breathe underwater. To breathe underwater. Other than that, we don't know that he underwent any change and maybe he could breathe underwater all along because remember that he's never been in water. So the fact that he can swim just means that he's becoming himself, becoming his complete self. And I feel like that's where, once again, not just preaching some kind of message, but having the reader experience that transformation in him should feel visceral, should feel very immediate. On he swam, no longer caring, exploring the lake with ever stronger kicks and strokes. He half expected that he would metamorphose into one of them. He'd stay here, underwater, maybe for an hour or two. Maybe for a day. Maybe for a long time. Maybe forever. This story has, to me, three very distinct notions of, of a world. And the first world is kind of a comic world, a world that we live in, but that is absurd. The second one is a real world of prejudice and slur and hatred and intolerance. Fish and then this last world, which I find actually the most fascinating, 
is a magical world, a world that we can't know as humans. He goes underneath, his arms and legs relax. He can sense with great clarity what's going around him. Particles hang suspended in a shaft of light, and he sees the open water, but he's at home in a sense. He nipped at a strand of algae with his mouth. It tasted like kombu. Perfect. For, For a vegan. vegan. You do at the end, you say it's an ellipsis and it is, but in a sense it is a bit circular in that you just introduce a comic moment. Perfect for a vegan, right? He eats the algae, it's in his mouth, and then it tastes like kombu, and then it's perfect for a vegan. I, I like that ending. Um, would, you, would you talk just about that ending a minute? Because you, sure. you, light, you lightened it, you lightened it just a little bit at the end, I think. Well, Brad, that's what we call in the business an anticlimax. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a professional secret that I don't like to divulge. Oh. But, uh, but exactly that is the point that I don't want to leave it as this kind of preposterous pregnancy of the story as if it were a great clarion call. And in the end, Walter's just a guy. He's just a kid in high school. Like, what does he know? There's some kind of stirrings of enlightenment here. But I, above all, I wanted to remember that he's the guy who's just trying to make his way through high school. And that's, that's hard enough just by itself. Would you say that if we all had a better sense of self-recognition, maybe some of these things that divide us would be less divisive? I'm going to let you be the one who states it that cleanly, and I'm going to soften it a little and introduce a slight note of skepticism by saying to recognize others, we first have to experience self-recognition. If we can truly see ourselves as we are, then that next step of recognizing others as they are could happen. And if that happens, sure, that could lead to more harmonious relations, which is what one is after. But I, I prefer to leave it like the story, not with quite that much closure, but just to say that self-recognition has been known to produce the ability to recognize others as they truly are. Thank you for interviewing me. This has been one, one lovely. I just want to say one thing, so it's in the show. <laughs> Let that be our cry to the future.
Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to musicians, singers, and songwriters. Michael Fuller. Jessica Fuller. Thank you to singer Phil Houston for the right stuff. Thank you to Kocheck for the cool jazz. And Ashton Barbary. You made me believe another John you see. A special thank you to Joseph Fuller for the amazing soundscapes and songs. To check out a complete Fishhead soundtrack and more fish songs, go to Arts and Letters Radio.org. Thank you to actors Joseph Fuller, Michael Fuller and Tommy Briacos. A special thanks to narrator Rachel McMahon. Thanks to Becca Story, Calvin Kareko, and Tim Kareko. Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestra of One for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Thank you to Mary Ellen Cuban for the story editing and production help. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer Johnny Payne, whose timeless story uncovers our present world through humor, satire, irony, and metamorphosis, and on a deeper level, seeks to transform our world. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Miller. Let's heed the words... Of Franz Kafka. A book must be an axe with a frozen sea within us. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.